Amen. We are in John's Gospel. Seeing Jesus in John is the title of the series. We will be in John chapter 1, verse 14 today. Uh, but before we do that, I want to backtrack some all the way back to the Exodus. The story, of course, of the Israelites as they were led out of enslavement in Egypt, led by the prophet Moses. And I just want to think back on that great event. I mean, if you could imagine this scene, the Bible tells there were 600,000 men who left Egypt at that time besides the women and children. So we believe there was maybe 1.5, 2 million, or maybe even more people leaving Egypt in this mass exodus. And you could imagine just the the sea of humanity, two million people traveling on foot together, countless animals and herds following them. They leave Egypt with much spoil as the Egyptians were giving them treasure, saying, get out of here after all these plagues that God had brought. And they were excited. They were finally going to be in their own land, in their own place. But as time goes on, they look more like a refugee camp out in the middle of the desert, living in tents, But all the while, there was something peculiar about these people. That in their midst was the tabernacle. Wherever they would go, the tent of the Lord would be in the center of their camp. God was dwelling in their midst. Now, while the presence of God was an awesome thing to have Yahweh in the midst of His people, at that time there were many barriers between man and God. God had given very strict rules on how man was to approach God. Blood sacrifices were needed. Uh, Rules of cleanliness were given that had to be kept to a T. So God was there in the midst of His people, but He probably felt distant at times. There was a divide between man and God. Now as we've opened up John's Gospel, we've been introduced to the Word, who is of course Jesus. And we've learned that the Word was in the beginning with God. That at creation, there He already was. He has eternally existed. We learn that He is God. That He is distinct from the Father, yet He is also God Himself. We learn that through Him all things were created, and even for Him, we read in Colossians, all things were created. And last week we learned that life is in Him. And that life is the light of men. That Jesus has come into this world shining a great light into the souls of men. And the darkness has not and cannot overcome this light. And all that would receive Him would be born. Not of blood, not of the will of man, not of the will of the flesh. But they would be born of God. They would be born again. And they would be given the right to become children of God. But so far, the Word has been distant. You know, we read this text and we we maybe picture Jesus at creation. There He was doing His thing. We, We picture Him in heaven with the Father. But He is far off from us. Maybe even impersonal at this point, as we've read in John's Gospel. But today, something radical is going to take place. Something marvelous is going to happen as the Word draws near to His people. And this is a nearness, this is a closeness that is completely different than what Israel experienced in the wilderness, even as God dwelt in their midst. 
because Jesus comes to his people in a very intimate, in a very personal way. So we're going to pick up where we left off last week in John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he, I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, or your translation may say the only Son, or the only begotten, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. He has revealed Him. So we, we, we've read all these lofty statements about Jesus, that he, has, that he is eternal, that He is the Creator. But today we see that the Word has come near to His people. The Word has come near. And as we open, we read that He has become one of us. Verse 14 again. And the Word became flesh. This has to be one of, if not the most profound mysteries for the human mind to attempt to comprehend. That the divine, eternal, second person of the Trinity, the purpose of creation, the scope and aim of the entire Bible has stepped off of His heavenly throne and has donned humanity. Jesus has taken upon Himself a human nature to become a man. Now, uh, He does not cease being divine. He is still completely divine. He is not half God and half man. He is not sometimes God and sometimes man, but He is 100% God and 100% man. He has a divine nature and He has a human nature. And He continues to be a man forever. He did not lose His humanity when He ascended back to heaven. He continues now to be the God-man. So the Word has become flesh. God has become a human. And if we just ponder that for a moment, that the infinite God, with limitless power and limitless ability, Limitless knowledge has become a human. He has been clothed in human flesh so that people could literally see a man walking beside them and say, that is God in the flesh. And if we contrast this to kind of the distant nature of Old Testament worship and the distant nature of Old Testament relationship to God, I think the difference is profound. In the Old Testament, indeed, there was fellowship with God. You know, some like to paint this, this, this contrast between Old and New Testament, that the God of the Old Testament is this ogre who is always mad, and then Jesus is this loving lamb, and they're, and they're so different. We're talking about the same God. But definitely how man interacted with God was different in the Old Testament. But we need only read the Psalms to see that man had intimate fellowship with God in the Old Testament. We see men crying out for a, a deeper experience with God, a deeper relationship uh, with the Lord. But God was always this kind of transcendent, far-off, 
completely different being than we are. Because He's God, right? That's, that's just how it is. So you can imagine that for them, it may have been more difficult to relate to God. As He was not very relational. He was God Almighty. And we share some of the same difficulties in our day still, even with Jesus trying to relate to God Himself, trying to have a relationship with the Lord of glory. But when Jesus becomes one of us, when He dawns humanity, when He becomes a man, He becomes our brother. He becomes one of us. He becomes part of the human race to where we can relate to Him just as we can relate to any other human that has experienced life on this earth. You know, we tend to, you, you think of a, of a king, and I think we tend to think about God and man like this, that a king who sits in his ivory tower, who sits in his castle, who has everything handed to him his whole life, he's lived in royalty, he doesn't, know what it, he doesn't even know what the word need means, he's never needed anything in his life. He has everything at his fingertips. If he says a person dies, they die. That kind of king cannot relate to a peasant. He cannot relate to the common man. Sure, they are both humans, but he has no real comprehension of what it means to be a common person and to struggle and to suffer and all of those things. And Sometimes we think of the relationship between men and God like that, that God doesn't really understand us because He's high and lifted up and we're just kind of living this life day to day. But Jesus becomes one of us. We have intimate fellowship with Him. He has experienced the full gamut of what it means to be human just as we have and do. And what this does is I think it should aid in our fellowship with God or in our communion with Jesus. And let me just try to give a few examples of, of why I say that. Number one is quite simple, is that Jesus has a human body. Right now He has a glorified body. We will one day be like Him. But Jesus has a human body. And He lived on this earth in a human body just like we do. And we're all familiar, of course, with the suffering that Jesus experienced on this earth. That He was beaten, that He was whipped, that a crown of thorns was shoved into His skull that He was eventually nailed to a cross. If you're here today and, and your body is afflicted, you are suffering, your body maybe is failing you, uh, maybe you're someone that would say, pain is just part of my daily life, Jesus knows suffering. And Jesus has compassion on His people. You know, Paul speaks in Philippians of us being given the the right or the privilege to Jesus in the fellowship of His suffering. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not the sort of fellowship that I pray about every night, is to join Jesus in the fellowship of His suffering. But I do believe that there is a fellowship that we can have with our Lord that we only experience in the midst of suffering. As we walk in the same painful footsteps that Jesus walked in. But Jesus has experienced pain in His body to the most extreme levels. And He wants us to turn to Him. He wants us to trust Him and to know that He understands. He knows what you're going through. Not just because He made you, but because He has walked in your footsteps. He has experienced suffering more than any of us in this room. And He did it all without sinning. And He did it all as an innocent man. 
Number two, not only did Jesus have a human body, but he has a heart. Jesus has a heart. Jesus experienced emotions just like any other human. We read in Matthew that he looked upon the crowds and he had compassion on them. He saw them as sheep without a shepherd. He saw them as lost with no one to care for them, no one to nurture them, no one to feed them, no one to spiritually lead them. And his heart broke for the people as he looked upon their plight. Elsewhere we hear him saying, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I have longed to gather you under my wings like a mother hen gathers her chicks. His heart broke as he looked upon the people and their rebellion against God that they had missed their Messiah. And of course we see the text where Jesus wept over the death of his friend Lazarus. Even coming to his grave, and knowing that he was going to resurrect him, knowing that as soon as he spoke those words, that life was going to come back into his body, Jesus grieved with his friends over the loss of, the, of their friend Lazarus. If you've come here today uh, to this church with a broken heart, maybe with a heavy burden that is too much for you to bear, Jesus knows what it's like. Jesus has experienced emotional suffering. Jesus knows what it's like to lose a loved one. He has, he has felt the sting of death. He knows what it's like to see those around you harden their hearts to God. No matter how much we pray and pray and pray to see those we love rebel against the God that we love so much. He knows it as so many around Him rejected the grace that He offered. He understands brokenness. He understands despair. He understands righteous anger. He understands carrying the burden of others. And He has compassion for you. He wants to meet you where you are. He wants you to carry your burdens to Him. He will meet your needs. And He promises to sustain us through heartbreak and through emotional turmoil. But I think we have to give those things to Him. We have to go to Him. We have to surrender our pain to Him. And we have to trust Him that He's going to carry us through. And I believe that He promises He will. And lastly, uh, how can we relate? How does Jesus becoming a man help me relate to Him and help me relate to God? And I would say that number three is that Jesus lived in this world. Jesus has lived in this world that we live in. He has experienced the devastating effects of sin, and he has experienced the depravity of the human heart more than anyone ever could. As his own creation, his own people that he gave life to, that exist because of him, screamed with, with blood in their eyes and in their hearts, crucify him, crucify him. So if you've come to God's church today with a, with a heavy heart, maybe with a burden, as we look around uh, at the depravity of the world that we live in, at, at the sin that is just rampant in our day and in our nation, uh, if your heart today is broken by the tragedy that took place just this week in our land, so many in our nation are celebrating uh, greater freedom to murder children in the womb. Did you know that the womb, the womb of a mother, has become the most dangerous place 
for any person to be in this land because it is the number one cause of death today, abortion. Beyond any other sickness, any other thing a person can lose their life for. Children are being sacrificed on the altar of convenience. And we're being fed the lie that it is somehow an issue of women's health or women's rights. Beloved, this is not a political issue. This is not an issue of Democrat or Republican, left or right. It is highly politicized, but this is a gospel issue. This is an issue of image bearers, those made in the image of God, being destroyed by the ones that are supposed to nurture and protect them the most. And as the church, we know ultimately that the only solution for this sin is the gospel. Right? We can legislate, we can make all the laws that we want, but laws do not change the human heart. You know, this week as I watched kind of the news and, and these stories unfold, I, uh, my mind was brought back to the words of the prophet Isaiah, who spoke to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And that is happening in our midst. We have a whole host of people in our nation telling us that evil is good and it should be celebrated. So if your heart today is heavy for the injustices of our land, and there are many, there are many, just understands. And just to relate this to Jesus' day, um, things were not all that different even 2,000 years ago. In the days of Jesus, it was common that there would be a piece of land kind of just outside of the town uh, where people would discard their unwanted children. Maybe a, a woman had a child that she did not want to keep. Maybe the husband or the man persuaded her to not keep it. And they would just dump off children in a field where they would be uh, perish from exposure. In the first century, Christians became known for monitoring these areas, rescuing those children. So Jesus knows the depravity of the human heart. But He has compassion on us, even in our sin. He has compassion on us. And He calls all people, no matter how dark their secrets are, no matter how loudly and boldly they have openly hated Him, He calls all everywhere to repent and believe. And He will show mercy. It does not matter what we've done. It does not matter what they have done out there. And it does not ultimately matter what we have done in here. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, He will forgive. He will be gracious to and He will show mercy to. But woe to those again who call evil good and good evil because He will bring justice one day against His enemies and He will vindicate righteousness. So the Word has come near. And He has become one of us. He has become a man. He understands what it means to be human. He understands to the most intimate level of what it means to suffer, what it means to be broken over sin. And He was literally broken over sin. But He has compassion on us. And He desires us to, to trust in Him, to come to Him in our pain, to come to Him in our suffering, in our hardship, and His shoulders can bear that weight. Number two, that the Word has come near. He has become one of us and He has also made His home with us. Again, John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
language here John uses, he says he tabernacles with us. He builds his tent with us. Of course, going back to that same language of the tabernacle, where God dwelt in the midst of his people. The tabernacle was the place where man met God. This is where worship happened. This is where service to God happened. This is where the sacrifices took place. It all happened at the tabernacle and nowhere else. Any other place was condemned by God. The change here now is profound because Jesus now becomes the tabernacle. He becomes the true temple. The way to God. And this is a great thing for us because no longer do you need a priest to represent you before God. No longer do you need a priest to offer sacrifices for you on your behalf to God. No longer do you have to go to the temple or to the tabernacle to find communion with God. But the Word is drawn near, and He has made His home with us. And in so doing, He has made Himself now the way to God. He's taken away all the ceremonies. He's taken away all the special feasts, the specific geographical location that, that people had to go to. He is now the way to God. The Word is drawn near and He has opened up to us and for us access to God. The veil of the temple has been torn down, that veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the people, God's presence from humanity. That veil has been torn and Jesus has made the way for us. And lastly, the Word has come near and He has poured out His grace upon us. He has poured out His grace Upon us, and I'll read here. I'll read the rest of our text. And the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him, and cried out, "This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me." For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. So John says, we have seen His glory. The glory of God has been revealed to humanity in the person of Jesus. Who the author to the Hebrews tells us, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. In times past, the glory of God would come to the tabernacle. It would be seen in the temple. But we have beheld the glory of God in the Son of God. And He is full of grace and truth. And from His fullness... We have received grace upon grace. The idea that he's getting at is that Jesus is this endless well of grace. He is full of grace. If I was to grab that pitcher off the back counter over there and bring it in here and bring in a water hose from right there and put it in that pitcher and kind of turn it on low, that pitcher would fill up and it would just overflow and overflow and overflow. And Jesus is just like that. He is an endless well of grace from his fullness that can never be depleted we can never take and deplete 
the, the graciousness of God from His fullness, from this never-ending well, we have received grace upon grace. Now, this is a piling on of grace that Christ has shown to His church. This is gracious act after gracious act. Church, I know you would agree with this, uh, that when a person understands God's grace, when you begin to see His grace in your life, you just begin to see it everywhere. I mean, we see it every day. We see it all the time as He is constantly extending grace to us. As He is patient with us. As He, as he is showing kindness to us. As He bears with us in our shortcomings and in our weakness. You know, I came across a verse this week as I was studying, and I want to share it with you. If you would turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, if you have your Bible. You know, I've read 2 Corinthians before, and but I've never seen this verse. You know, sometimes you can read the Bible and God can just show you a verse. And I wonder, where has this been all my life? How have I, how have I not seen this? And I'm sure you've experienced that as well. You know, one day the Holy Spirit just, wow, just wows you. You know, and I came across this verse, and I think if someone asked me, if you could kind of encapsulate the incarnation, God becoming a man, what, what, did, what did it all mean? What did He do? What did that look like? If you could just give it to me in one verse, I think I would go uh, to this verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know, grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, poverty, might become rich. If you think about Jesus stepping off of His heavenly throne, I mean, He is worshipped day and night. He has all rights. He has all authority. He owns everything. He is God. He is rich beyond measure. He is the absolute epitome of rich. He owns it all. He lacks nothing. Need is not a word in the vocabulary of God. Need is a creature word. He is self-sustaining. He has everything at His disposal. Yet He becomes poor. He steps into poverty. And this, this idea of Him coming into poverty, we're not just talking about His financial state here on this earth. Theologians have called the incarnation, God becoming a man, His humiliation. His humiliation just before His exaltation as He is glorified and goes back to heaven. You think about God Almighty stepping off of His throne, just the fact that He stooped from so high to so low to become a human is humiliating. And then He lives this life of a servant, as a peasant, just a common man. He comes to serve and not to be served. And then He's rejected by His people. He's spit upon. He's mocked. He's beaten beyond recognition. It says you could not tell if he was a man or a woman. No one could even tell. He was so disfigured. And then he is nailed to a cross, unclothed, and hung there and left to die. This is the epitome of humiliation. He who had all riches, who owned everything, gave it all up and stepped into poverty so that he could make you rich. 
rich in spirit. This is not a richness that the world could give you. This is not a richness that the world could take away from you. Even in the midst of utter financial ruin, even in the midst of a life like Job, every single creaturely comfort, every single thing that he owns snatched from him, Jesus makes you rich. Untold blessings await you in glory. The weight of your sin removed. The penalty of your sin taken away. Fellowship with your Creator. Fellowship with your fellow man. Real fellowship in real life now on this earth. An understanding of what life truly is about. That it's not about us, but it's about Him. This is a richness not like the world offers. And this is a richness not like your flesh desires. So that no matter what comes your way, no matter what pain, no matter what suffering, no matter what loss, that we could sing from the bottom of our hearts, it is well with my soul. Jesus has stepped off of His heavenly throne the one who had all riches, who had no need. And he stepped into poverty. He stepped down to be humiliated, to give it all. And He did that to make you rich. The Word has come near and He has poured out His grace upon us. Let's pray. Lord, we are humbled. 